0: Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the AfriNuke podcast. Have you wondered where the decoupled podcast got its name from? How about the advent of modern healthcare? Where do you pitch your tent when juxtaposed with the traditional environmentalist thoughts or the eco-modernist futuristic premise? In this episode of the AfriNuke podcast, we are joined with a Canadian medical doctor, Chris Kiefer, who will be on his way to COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland. We discuss his passion amongst other compelling and thought provoking actionable concepts on electricity and how it relates to healthcare. He unequivocally bears his mind and you will sure admire his drive. If you listen to the end, you will even hear how nuclear contributed to saving a son's life and how we all can do it. Relax and relish the scintillating sound bites through the cradle of humanity while we decouple the African Nuclear Landscape or Afri-Nukin decoupled podcast. Dr. Chris, uh, I usually ask my guests to uh, introduce themselves and uh, tell us a bit about themselves. So, please, can you tell us about, about yourself?
1: Yeah. A- absolutely. Um... So I am a emergency physician um, working in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Ontario uh, is the most populated province in Canada. Um, And it's nuclear powered. Um, We rely on nuclear for 61% of our electricity um, and actually um, use nuclear power to phase out uh, coal, which used to be 25% of our electricity. So I joke that Ontario is the France of North America. Um, So I'm very proud to be here and uh, I'm pretty new to nuclear. Um, I uh, do not work uh, in the industry, I have no ties. And what drew me to nuclear was a concern about climate change as I became a a new father um, and I just got hooked. Um, It's an area that I think is probably one of the most misunderstood. Um, And the more you learn, um, you know, it's just such an illuminating field uh, with so much potential um, in the context, again, of climate change, energy, security um, and, uh, and air pollution and other issues which are very important to human health.
0: That's great, wonderful. Like um, when I looked through your um, podcast, uh, the heading alone gave me a very um, interesting, um, like made me r- recall um, something I read about the decoupling of um, of the energy system, and I read it in the Eco Modernist um, Manifesto written by. Uh, Michael Schellenberger and his team and um, other people so it was at the end they like said that we need to decouple so I mean like and when I stumbled on your podcast it rang a very strong bell so I was wondering how you got the title for that uh, podcast if it's uh, very much in tandem with that um, write-up or it's just a coincidence (laughs)
1: No, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, when people initially heard about this podcast, they thought, um, you know, is this a relationship podcast? Um, uh, Is this relationship advice? Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about economic decoupling, um, you know, between China and the USA uh, during the Trump presidency, so people get confused about that. Uh, But you're absolutely right. It's a reference um, to a concept that I I took from the Eco-Modernist Manifesto. And again, it's this idea um, that, we can maintain um, the journey of human progress, of human flourishing, um, that we can all live better lives, that the developing world can continue to develop. Uh, But there's a way to do that by the use of the right technologies, uh, which allow us to continue that journey of human progress while not um, impacting our environment, while not making climate change worse, um, while actually improving a lot of environmental markers. Um, So it's very inspiring to me, and it's, it's very much in contrast to um, what I'll call, you know, mainstream environmentalism, boomer environmentalism, eco-romanticism, um, whose whole premise <laughs> is one of nostalgia that we need to return back to simpler ways. Um, and it's very much an expression of, you know, a environmentalism that emerges from the wealthy world, from the rich world, where we can sort of um, romanticize a low energy lifestyle. Um, so, you um, it's been a really fascinating journey as you're mentioning, I've got to speak to people around the world. Um, I, I did get to speak with, um, I'm going to butcher his name, but palvi um, uh, a wonderful, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. individual a nuclear engineer from South Africa. Um, so we have, we have yeah. dipped our toes into Africa. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, okay. it's, um, I'm very, very happy to be interviewed um, by you and, and to to learn from you as well. All right,
0: cool. Yeah, uh, you know, um, when I was, um, uh, listening to some uh, episodes of your podcast, I saw some very interesting interviews you've made, which I would not want to delve into, to dilute uh, what I, <clears throat> the natural flow of our conversation today, but. Uh, I kind of, uh, since you've started making inroads into Africa, I would like us to talk a bit more about the climate or the climbs or the situation we find ourselves. So your podcast, I would like to say, if I hope it sounds um, in consonance with its meaning, I think it's more about sustainability because you are talking about uh, how you can, since you and I recent that, congratulations about about that. And um, yeah, yeah, you need to create a future or hope to have a future that your children will live in without um, uh, any harm or of such sorts. But in Africa, you know, most developing countries have exploited this um, means of um, sustaining themselves we consider dirty today. And uh, in Africa, you know, uh, we are still a bit um, more trying to catch up, if I would say, and um, I kind of am um, tempted to think that we should not worry about what um, the people in the first world, like where you are, are worrying about. But um, when I think of sustainability and why we should always um, think of the future, then I would like to, like, okay, say, okay, we need to also consider what these people are saying. So uh, when I was reading through the Eco Modernist uh, Manifesto, uh, since i think and you have also confirmed this where your uh, podcast took its title from i kind of um, in i think somewhere in the middle of the chapter of that book it was talking about um, the climate condition in africa and how africa should not be worrying about mitigation but rather to adapt instead and that brings me to the concept of uh, uh, nuclear energy which um, a major parts of your podcast, though not just um, focused on, has dealt with it in a very uh, amazing way. It has seen you go n- through different countries, um, holding stand up for nuclear campaigns in different parts of the world, and also having you to feature in um, Glasgow coming up um, in November. So, uh, I kind of think, what do you think? Uh, I want to ask in a kind of question way. What do you feel is uh, the point that should make the strongest case for nuclear, uh, not just in the developing world, but uh, in the underdeveloped or developing world uh, like Africa, where I find myself,
1: Mm -hmm. Dr. Chris? I mean, you've said some really important things there. Um, It is not um, Africa's responsibility to solve the climate crisis. Um, I think Africa is responsible for something like 3% of the world's historic emissions. Um, it is countries in the, uh, in the developed world, um, in the industrialized world, um, that have this, this climate debt, um, to repay. And we can talk about you know, climate reparations. There's also, you know, within the discourse, particularly North America, the idea of um, reparations that need to be paid due to the colonial history, the slave trade, et cetera. Um, So I'm very much of of that opinion. Um, And I think Africans have every right um, to develop the traditional environmental discourse states things like, you know, if everyone is to live like, you know, Europeans or North Americans, we'd need eight planets. Um, (laughs) <laughs> this concept of limits is something that has some degree of merit, um, but what the promise of decoupling um, offers is uh, an ability to expand um, again human human flourishing. Expand what what the limits are of what what we can all achieve, what kind of lifestyles we can live, what kind of healthcare we can have. Um, and I think nuclear is, is the reason I focused on it so much in my podcast um, is because it's, it's truly the, the ultimate decoupling technology. This is an energy source, you know, that's a million, two million times more energy dense than fossil fuels. Um, and let's be clear, I mean, fossil fuels lie at um, so much of, of what we've achieved in terms of human progress, in terms of increased lifespans, in terms of decreased child mortality. My own three-year-old son would be dead if it weren't for the high-energy society I live in. He was in an incubator for a month. Um, there's there's a lot that fossil fuels have done, um, however, it's time to do what we can to, to move beyond them. Um, because of some of those side effects like climate and air pollution. However, um, Africa has every right to use and exploit its fossil fuel resources to improve its level of development. And I think, you know, I was talking about climate debt and this idea of climate reparations. I think it's on the developed world, those countries that have nuclear programs to really encourage um, the development of nuclear in Africa, Um, so that Africa can to some degree leapfrog fossil fuels and move into this highly sustainable energy form which again because of that energy density um, is able to um, offer the most minimal of mining footprints Um, The most minimal of land footprints in terms of siting of of power stations um, and a decoupling from carbon emissions, almost an absolute decoupling from carbon emissions and an absolute decoupling from air pollution. So you can have the benefits of fossil fuels, certainly in things like electricity production and hopefully soon in um, process heat, um, but without those side effects. Um, so that's why I'm so passionate about nuclear energy and why I think it's uh, such an important thing for Africa and why I think the developed world has a duty and a debt um, to repay. And I think a really compelling way, you know, a hope I would have for my own country, Canada, who has developed the KANDU reactor technology is that we would be sharing that, um, you know, quote unquote intellectual property um, and assisting African countries in, in developing their, their nuclear programs.
0: It's cool. It's uh, quite inspiring, uh, wonderful contributions on how nuclear can help us um, upscale our development. And it's also very interesting to know how the first world used, like when I was talking with um, Robert Bryce, the the host of the um, Power Hungry podcast, you, you know, he was like, okay, so when you need something, first you need to be healthy first. You need to be Uh, on your food first, before you talk about um, sustainability, you need to actually get food on your table, if I may say, if I'm describing in terms of of being hungry, before thinking of uh, the nutrition it offers. So um, maybe he gave an illustration of maybe just like you said, uh, your baby being an incubator, he he gave an illustration of maybe you were in an accident. You were not thinking of um, a car that emits carbon. You want to get to the hospital through any possible means, right? Uh, So um, yeah, that's quite um, very much in agreement with um, uh, what is needed and um, what um, is maybe more adaptable to sustainability. So uh, I would like to um, ask you uh, if you may um, say uh, what really brought you to this level of um, I know your podcast is not totally about nuclear energy you were also more concerned about other aspects of um, life or science that um, improves human life and the future so why did you think uh, nuclear I know you've talked about the energy density but uh, Uh, Given the most recent event in Fukushima, you know, it's enough to actually uh, discountenance or discard the nuclear option as one of those that will help our society or the future. So, I mean, like being a medical doctor, I don't know, does that have any relation? And um, yeah, is there any kind of uh, maybe um, parallelism in your profession with your... Support for nuclear and maybe that's maybe some people in the similar profession might want to learn from
1: yeah Absolutely, so you know within medicine, um, you know, we're uh, we're at the bedside We're assisting patients in the here and now But we're also taught to consider what's called upstream causes of disease and these would be things like social determinants of health poverty um, air pollution Etc. And so I'm uh, always thinking um, about world problems from the perspective of something in emergency medicine that we call triage, which is this idea of how do you match limited resources um, to achieve the the, the greatest outcome? Um, it's a little bit utilitarian, um, but I think it has a lot of merit. And so, you know, as I've come to see, um, climate change is really um, one of the most important Aspects that's, uh, you know, and challenges that we face moving forward, both in terms of mitigation and adaptation, um, that really has brought nuclear to the fore. Now, you mentioned uh, Fukushima. Um, You know, we hear about this accident, we hear about Chernobyl, we hear about Three Mile Island. Um, It's very interesting the way in which um, the scare around nuclear weapons um, really raised fears of the toxicity of, of radiation. And it, it created a bit of a boogeyman in this sense. Um, you know, As a physician, I administer radiation every single shift in the form of x-rays, CT scans, diagnostic imaging, etc. Um, and I'm, I'm, as a result, more familiar with doses and, and able to make comparisons with nuclear accidents. So what people don't know is that for... The surrounding communities around nuclear plants that experience an accident, we're still talking about low doses of radiation. Um, and there's been this conflation, for instance, in Fukushima, um, even in in the national uh, broadcasting agency in my country, they said that the Fukushima accident caused 20,000 deaths. And this is Ooh. a conflation with the tsunami. You know, you had... I think the the third uh, most powerful earthquake ever recorded. It shifted the axis of the earth by several centimeters, created an enormous tsunami, flooded a nuclear station, which led to the meltdown of three reactors. And no one has died as a consequence of radiation. Zero. Yeah, um, You know, the doses received by some of the workers were in the order of, you know, 100, 150 millisieverts, um, but those of, of the surrounding um, countryside uh, were quite low. And we know from what I will reference as the scientific consensus, which are the studies conducted by UN agencies um, the United Nations uh, Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation, etc., that the real um, harm from nuclear accidents is not radiation. It's actually panicked responses to radiation. So there were deaths as a result of the panicked evacuation around Fukushima. I have a, a, a great friend, Ida Riesheim, um who runs the Thoughtscapism blog, um, and she did an analysis of um, mortality from air pollution versus Um, returning to the prefecture of Fukushima, to the the towns that were most affected by some of the radioactivity. Um, On the basis of its impact on shortening lifespans, we should be evacuating most of Tokyo, all of Shanghai, most polluted cities in the world, because we have good data on air pollution and its effects on limiting lifespan, knocking off five, six years of lifespan living in some of these areas. And the impact of radiation, it's knocking off days to weeks potentially Um, you know, in terms of artificial radiation, right, we're all exposed, we live in a radioactive world, we're constantly exposed to radioactivity, depending on where you live. If you live at higher altitudes, you're getting more cosmic rays, you have less insulation from the atmosphere. If you live in areas like, say, Denver, Colorado, in the United States, um, soils that are rich in uranium and higher elevations, you're getting um, doses of radiation similar to what you'd get living in most of the Fukushima prefecture. So should we evacuate Denver, Colorado? Uh, Should we evacuate that whole state? Should we evacuate Kerala, India? No. And that's what people don't understand is that the effect of radiation is no different if it's an artificial source or a natural source. And what's interesting in terms of the artificial sources of radiation in the world uh, that's about 15% of the average person's yearly dose. 93% of that artificial dose is from me, from from uh, medical practitioners in the form, again, of diagnostic imaging and radiation therapeutics. So there's a, a gross misunderstanding amongst the public and fear-mongering uh, by anti-nuclear activists um, that have hugely distorted um, the dangers of nuclear energy. And this has led to regulations that go so far and above and beyond the relative risk of nuclear compared to any other technology that it's really slowed its development and that's a tragedy because energy poverty kills air pollution kills um climate change kills and we have a way around this problem with nuclear energy so that's that's why i've become so passionate about it we need to uh, address these upstream effects of um of health um, and I say this as someone who's a passionate clinician who who loves being at the bedside with patients, but I would love those patients to not have to end up in hospital in the first place. I would love right, to make myself unemployed and redundant because, you know, the social determinants of health had been taken care of.
0: Well, that's so altruistic of you. I really hope that um, more people like you <laughs> populate our ads. So, um, yeah, quite understand because even the... Illustration you made about the air pollution was more evident during the COVID lockdown, you know, Uh, when they took the imaging of um, the effect, like they made a comparison of how China was before the lockdown and how it was and the coal consumption and like the carbon footprint was less. And it was so evident that um, air pollution was hurting us more than what um, radiation will do. And um, yeah, it's quite interesting how uh, people kind of um, focus on what should not be focused um, and also depriving themselves of uh, the benefits of nuclear. So I, I, you have said that th- this is what actually motivated you to do the uh, decoupled podcast amongst other um, um, interests. Uh, I've also listened to your interview or your uh, conversation about other aspects of science or the econo- eco-modernist um, um creed uh, where you talked about the um the gmos and uh, stuff like that and how it relates to the modern health so i kind of um, think uh are you kind of a futuristic um person that looks into the future and tells us okay hey this is the path to follow or like you are like trying to <laughs> show us the right direction to go as things emerge i don't know sometimes i listen to um and i read the book of um so uh, you about Noah Harari, so he's like a kind of uh, futuristic person that sees the future and tells mm-hmm. him, look, it's, this is what you should be doing to meet the future that is coming in front of you so <laughs> is this similar to that like I know like you've really given a good capture of i, I would so I would never
1: Indeed. be so bold, yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah okay so yeah i've uh, i've, I've
1: I would never be so hubristic as to uh, attempt to um, predict the future, um, although that's a temptation. Uh, But I am future oriented. Um, And what I really want to emphasize is that traditional environmentalists are past oriented. They're nostalgic for an imaginary past, for a Garden of Eden that they think we can return to. And again, this is very much an expression of a movement which has its origins in the elite, in the wealthiest of the developed world. Um, in terms of, um, being future oriented, you know, the history of humanity is tied up in technology. Homo sapiens as a species would not exist without fire, right? Cooking our food. This is what enabled us to shrink our guts and grow our brains and eat more nutritious food and and evolve as a species. Um, we throughout our history have used technology to solve problems, right? Technology has also created problems, but we're in this continuous cycle of innovating, developing new technologies to solve both the problems of previous technologies and, and other issues that we face. So, you know, I'm really um, in a um, in a thought process these days, um, you know, as the threat of climate change becomes more serious. Um, and, and the phrase comes to mind, innovate or die. And I know that sounds <laughs> a little bit uh, hyperbolic, <laughs> perhaps, but, you know, the, the catastrophist environmentalists talk a lot about, you know, billions of people dying as a result of climate change, you know, simultaneous crop failures, um, you know, tropical diseases getting worse, etc. They may very well create self-fulfilling prophecies if they're, um, Their ideology steers decision-making because, for instance, you know, we talked briefly about genetic engineering. If we're going to have more drought, more saline soils, more crop diseases, we need to use the best available technologies, the most potent technologies to deal with that. And that is things like gene editing and genetic engineering. Um, Africa needs a a green revolution um, in order to feed itself and become truly independent, just as India did in the 70s. That green revolution can be more ecological because of genetic engineering. But ironically, this environmental movement that pretends to, to care about the environment, and I think pretends to care about human beings and their well-being, is involved in trying to deny Africa the very tools that it needs to solve these problems. Um, I refer to this as a kind of eco-imperialism. Um, so the pressure that has been put on African countries not to use genetic engineering through threats of um, the EU banning imports, for instance, of whole countries if they experiment with genetic engineering um, is, is amoral and it's shocking. And, it, and it just it, 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 it's a neocolonialism and a neo-imperialism, and it's something that I absolutely, absolutely reject um, and think that needs to be fought off. Um, so yes, I am very future oriented. I'm very pro technology. Um, we can't be afraid of technology, um, and I- I'm very interested, um, you know, in understanding youth culture around the world. Um, I was speaking with a uh, someone on my podcast, Doctor S- uh, S- uh, Doctor Tinker, um, blanking on his first name. I think it's Doctor Stephen Tinker, and he's done a lot of traveling around the world, looking at energy, its impacts on people. Um, and one of the things I, I, that he mentioned to me was that youth in the developing world, in, in Africa and South Asia, seem to have a sense of optimism about them that's very much missing in youth in the in the developed world, um, and that's I think because you guys are are to some degree seeing progress, um, you're seeing electrification, um, you're seeing the benefits of technology, whereas in the Western world, youth are. Uh, full of climate anxiety, full of a kind of nihilism, um, full of a sense of hopelessness and powerlessness. Um, And that's something that I'm very much committed to fighting, because At this time, what we really need is to invest so heavily in education, in the future engineers, um, the future mathematicians, the future scientists um, who will help guide us through the challenges that we face by, again, developing the technologies and deploying them um, that can, again, decouple human flourishing from environmental stressors like climate change
0: maybe we should have an exchange of environments maybe that will help you achieve your aim better i mean like i mean you talk about the youth in africa and those in in the developed world yeah yeah the interests are different but i i because of the popular media people seem to i mean like generally people don't like the young people they are, the least of their concern in this part of the world is climate. You don't see people gathering and talking about climate. No. What people talk yes. more about is how to make money, like <laughs> the basic, how to meet the basic needs uh, that are yeah. uh, like is plaguing the, the society. So, yeah. And um, I kind of think since um, you are much um, in front for, for nuclear and the environment seems not too favorable, Although the developed world is um, like showing leadership in their legislation, like trying to adopt new measures or making, maybe create new avenues to uh, welcoming nuclear, maybe making them to have new builds, uh, like the environment, like from what I had recently in the COP26. There's the green and the blue zone. So, but uh, I, I really don't understand what the position of nuclear is going to be. Like uh, your presence there, I, didn't, I don't know. Like, uh, if there's any hope for the nuclear community, uh, I don't know what needs to be done. And um, I, don't, I don't know. Like, it's really looking bleak, in my opinion. But I hope that things change in the near future. Like, do you have any submission, observation, or what needs to be done in this regard?
1: Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'm actually quite optimistic. Um, there was a, cool. a nuclear renaissance or, or a beginning of a nuclear renaissance in the very early 2000s as we faced what seemed to be peak oil. And it just made energy and economic sense um, to pursue nuclear energy, just as it did during the OPEC crisis in the 70s. Nuclear flourishes when fossil fuel prices are high, when fossil fuels are unavailable. Um, It's interesting, renewables flourish when gas is cheap, when the backup is there, when you can afford a whole parallel generation system um, to operate when the wind and the sun do not cooperate. I think that's a very interesting observation and so yeah um yes there's a real importance yeah you you know there's very uh, a big importance for advocates like you and me to raise consciousness around nuclear energy um but in the end it's pragmatic things that lead to our energy choices and so right now we're facing a global energy crunch um europe is uh, facing natural gas prices that went up a thousand percent um, and they've made themselves highly dependent on natural gas. Again, because of this bizarre pursuit of what I call a Rube Goldberg grid. Um, you know, this eco-romanticism, this idea that we need to, um, um, you know, return to nature, that all things natural green are good, has led to this bizarre policy. And, and sorry, and the fear of nuclear has led to this bizarre policy of trying to base um, the very heart of civilization, the electric grid, on the weather. Um, and the weather has not been cooperating in Europe. Um, wind production is way down, um, 10, 20% down. Um, and so what's been needed to fill in the gap? Fossil fuels, gas, coal is the number one, um, generator in Germany right now. Germany, which poses as, you know, an environmental and climate hero, the number one source of electricity, 27% of their grid has been coal this year. So, um, in that context, we're seeing what I think is the beginning of a nuclear renaissance. Um, more, you know, France just came out saying um, that we're highly supportive of nuclear. We need to reinvent nuclear, announcing a major investment. The UK as well. Um, you know, there's gonna be a real rush for the world's available fossil fuels. And I'm very worried for Africa, for countries of, of less means. Germany can get through this. They're a very rich country. They'll burn whatever they need to. Um, they'll, they'll buy the limited reserves of energy. Um, but I'm very concerned. Uh, you know, Lebanon is in a total blackout. Um, I'm not sure if the grid is still down, but their entire grid went down for a number of days. And that means hospitals were without power. People died as a result. This is catastrophic. Um, So I'm I'm very concerned about that. Um, But this energy crunch, um, I think, does pretend a possibility of a nuclear renaissance. And you have to remember in the early 2000s, South Africa was talking about installing something like 12 uh, gigawatts of nuclear. Um, You know, they were signing a deal with uh, Rosatom to start on that process. Um, So I think that just the pragmatics, the reality of the global energy crunch Is going to lead to a nuclear renaissance. And I think, um, you know, uh, probably China is going to become the source of a lot of that nuclear technology for Africa because, um, you know, they're very interested in in soft power. They have enormous foreign reserves, they can create, um, uh, you know, business agreements within Africa where they take on a lot of the financing. Um, and I think pragmatically, that's that's how nuclear is going to get built in Africa. And I think in the next 10-15 years, um, we will see a nuclear renaissance um, in Africa. It just it only makes sense um, with with high fossil fuel prices. Nuclear is the solution. Renewables yeah, of are not. Um, and we yeah. can talk more about that if you like. But it's yeah. it's a little bit of yeah, a, yeah. A I mean, it, it
0: appears it appears more real because uh, yeah, we're giving uh, credence to China being the. The front, Although t- Russia is also like trying to up its hand uh, with uh, China, but um, given the debt um, most African countries have towards China, it might be m- very reasonable for them to just use their financing to get whatever they want, most n- um, nuclear um, reactors. The experimental ones like the one in Nigeria and Ghana, I think they were like supplied by China. So it's quite naturally they come into to upscale it to the plant um, size. So quite agree with you uh, in what you've been um, saying about uh, nuclear renaissance and Uh, I think there is a a palpable fear uh, because uh, in Africa, most things like boils down to politics. People don't always talk about rational um, thinking or imagination or like how to deploy technology based on its um, perceived benefits and stuff like that. Politics is a very major issue and I think that's what's made the um, initial plan of the South African government to bring 12 um, gigawatts of uh, nuclear, not to actually materialize at this point in time. But hopefully in the process of time, it comes back up. But politics is a major issue. So I think um, uh, we should also try to see how we can um, infuse politics in the advocacy for nuclear and how we can maybe make the policy makers and the politicians to buy into the idea of nuclear. And I wonder, like, how is the atmosphere in Canada? Like, um, is, are they more in front for nuclear? Uh, is there any effect in it, in their policy? And um, how is the future like in, over there?
1: Well, it's, it's very interesting. Um, you know, in terms of this idea of a nuclear renaissance, the West has proven in the last 20 years that we suck at building new nuclear. Um, you know the 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 failure of the nuclear renaissance. I think owes itself to three issues. One is the fracking revolution, um, which led you know for historically low natural gas prices, which have put a major stress on nuclear. High natural gas prices, what were pushing the renaissance, right? Fukushima um, was a major issue and led to uh, the decision to phase out nuclear in Germany, for instance, and in a real freeze on say nuclear builds in China. And lastly, the incompetence of the nuclear industry in the West to actually get reactors built. We know that it's possible to build nuclear reactors um, cheaper than coal. Certainly, South Korea was able to do that. Um, And in the early days of nuclear in the 60s and 70s, um, nuclear was the cheapest form of energy. Uh, We know that's possible. Now, the West keeps thinking that the answer to its inability to build new nuclear is to come up with different designs. To experiment with different scales, advanced nuclear, small modular reactors, AP1000s, you know, EPRs. Um, and if you look at the countries that have had success now and are successful now, um, particularly South Korea, that I think is really an example to hold up, they looked around the world at that time and said, Who is, who's building nuclear? Who's getting it done on budget and on time? What designs are working? And they had the humility to, um, you know, buy those designs, to pay those experts to come and teach them. And they learned how to be an absolute world leader um, in building nuclear. And they've just uh, done it again in the Emirates, which I think is, you know, it's a wealthy country, but that's an example um, of what's possible. Now, in the West, again, what we need is humility. Um, We've deindustrialized. The West is starting to decay um, as we see countries like China rising. Um, even India, et cetera. Um, and so in the West, I think what's really needed is for us to be humble, to learn from the Koreans, to learn from the Chinese. Who's doing this on budget and on time? What designs are you doing? But instead, um, we're putting all our eggs in the basket of um, SMRs and advanced nuclear. So, um, is there a need for SMRs? Yes. Um, and particularly in Africa where we have you know smaller grids, you don't want to install a power plant that's more than 10% of your grid capacity because it's going to have to come offline for fueling and et cetera. I don't want to say that there's no role for SMRs. But my real concern here um, is that we're not learning the lessons of the past. And so my fear in Canada is that we are abandoning our can-do technology, which is an amazing technology. Um, you know, it was designed to get around some of the challenges that Africa faces. Um, we do not enrich uranium. We're able to use natural uranium. Um, And we don't have heavy forging, so we created a design using these pressure tubes and uh, non-enriched uranium, which I think is very applicable to Africa. And indeed, you know, we are helping some countries like Romania build can-dos, but we're not doing it here at home, and I think that's a real shame. Um, You know, we are much more concerned about climate change because we're a decadent country. We can afford to do that, unlike many developing countries. Um, And as a result, if we're talking about electrification of sectors like transportation, um, you know, Canada is one of the highest greenhouse gas emitting countries in the world per capita because a big part of that is because we have long distances between cities, lots of commutes, big cars. So if we need to electrify everything. We need to two to three times the size of our grid. And doing that with uh, small modular reactors just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, so you know that's my little kind of rant on that topic and on how things are going here in here in Canada, um, and I think hopefully that's uh, applicable more broadly.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, we you need Africa to prove that you can do it once more. Like, bring that um, calandra here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, the the future of yeah the future of the youths and um, the youth in Africa is hinged upon leadership decisions and what innovations they, they, they imbibe and also what they do in terms of their daily lives and the kind of um, energy that powers their activities. I kind of wonder, so many young people that are listening to us right now are wondering like, what is the future in, in nuclear technology? Uh, recently, we had a kind of show in, in Nigeria, kind of telling people about the different aspects of nuclear technology, the applications to medical aspect inclusive and so many people expressed um, so a large level of um, uh, oblivion in terms of um, what nuclear technology is and what how it can benefit them So many people uh, one I had somebody talk to me saying that so many students, in the institution she attends, do not know a lot about nuclear. In fact, when they mention nuclear technology, they are kind of wondering what are they talking about? So uh, there is a lot of um, room for education and training in this part of the world. And I think that's uh, largely applies in many parts of Africa. So I think a lot needs to be done to educating people on how this um, technology can um, improve their lives and make them live a better life. but The question I want to ask is, uh, how can the young people be more connected to this technology? I know you live in a different climate where people are more concerned with higher ideals. But here, given our peculiar conditions, but I would not want to exclude us or exclude the African society from the level of thinking of the Western world, because technology has really exposed us to different ways of doing things and make things happen in um, synchronization. You might begin to wonder if people do things the way you do it over there. You will be surprised to see that people are even living the advanced life here in Nigeria or in other parts of Africa because of what's the information technology exposes us to so i wonder like is there any way you think we can be in synchronization with the western world here in africa in terms of what the knowledge and the benefits and the kind of things the way of thinking the way we should do things or go about promoting nuclear technology in our world here doctor in I've, addition I've, to I've, perhaps what to say has say been done for before I have a lot to yeah. say here
1: i think one of the themes one of the themes um, that you've been mentioning here is that in Africa, the concerns are very pragmatic. Um, the concerns are poverty eradication, um, which requires reliable energy. Now, Nigeria, from what I understand, spends 12 to 17 billion dollars a year on generators because the grid is unreliable. Um, there is eight times the grid capacity um, in terms of um Of generators of diesel generators because people can't trust the grid it's constantly going down and a stable grid as robert bryce says is is it is the network of all networks you cannot develop um, without stable electricity and just think about that 12 to 17 billion dollars a year i mean that could build you um a gigawatt nuclear reactor every year 10 billion dollars is approximately what it might cost maybe lower if the chinese do it or rosatom does it Um, And what would that give you? That would give you reliable electricity with which you could develop um, and, you know, build this much higher quality of life and also, you know, rid yourself of some of those higher order issues of of air pollution. So that's just one thing. Um, But, you know, access to electricity is is an issue, uh, I think, throughout the developing world, you know, rural electrification, etc. But if your electricity is not reliable, people don't trust it and they, you know, they defect from the grid. Um, And that's a major development issue. Let let me talk about a few other issues that people don't think about. Um, Food irradiation, right? Um, This is a key technology. We know that about 40% of the world's food is wasted post-harvest because it spoils or goes bad or people, you know... And food irradiation can drastically extend the lifespan of fresh fruits and vegetables, grains, et cetera, by um, selectively killing off bacteria, fungus, et cetera. Make food safe. It's estimated that in the US, a developed country, if we did more food irradiation, we could save 5,000 lives a year. This is in a developed country. So imagine what can happen in the developing world with that. And again, people are terrified of radiation. Food irradiation does not make your food radioactive. It does not affect the nutrition of the food. It saves lives um lastly medical isotopes um canada is a huge producer of medical isotopes we do it in our power reactors in our candus so that's yet another argument for candu we produce enough cobalt 60 to sterilize 20 billion pieces of single-use medical equipment this is equipment that you can't sterilize in an autoclave because you'll melt it you know um, endotracheal tubes ivs gloves masks everything With cobalt 60. So, you know, the way I put this is you can't have modern healthcare without medical isotopes. And that's just not, that's not just for diagnostics and cancer treatment. That is for the very foundation of sterility, which enables surgery, which enables um, the safe provision of healthcare. Um, So, These are some of the things which are uh, offered by nuclear technology that I think people don't think of uh, very, very often. And, you know, I think some people think that, you know, nuclear is a very expensive way to boil water, you know, and should Africa not be doing it in the most cheap um, and affordable way? Do they not have every right to do that with fossil fuels? They do. Um, But fossil fuel prices are going up. um, And I think that these other benefits of nuclear um should be weighed into the the occasion and i think um having a diverse set of generating sources on your grid is is absolutely essential um and we know that again nuclear can be done in an inexpensive manner it's not easy it's not easy but there are countries that are figuring it out around the world and we need to learn from them we need to be humble um and uh and 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 benefit from this amazing technology
0: wow thank you so so much for this amazing output and um your narration has been quite inspiring. I mean, like, uh, I never expected to have such an informative and uh, enlightening session with you. Uh, you may have noticed now the Nigerianization of our grid has happened, you know. There is no light, you see. <laughs> so evident, you know. So, um, I do. But I, do I quite appreciate. I'm glad your computer has yeah. a battery. Yeah. yeah, and it's almost complaining to go off now. But uh, before it does that, I would like to uh, really appreciate uh, your time. Uh, you are a convergence of practical knowledge. Uh, you are you've engaged in altruistic uh, advocacy, and um, you are a positor of um, elegant modern world uh, with a view on um, sustainability. You've really given us uh, a lot of content and um, ideas on how to develop in our parts of the world, and also be in tandem with um, the eco modernist uh, manifesto. So. Uh, Dr. Chris, I wonder, like, what is the thing that actually keeps you going? What are the um, measures you adopt to keep you, you jostle a lot of activities? I see you're advocating for the other health uh, professionals, and you're also advocating for nuclear, and you're hosting the Decouple podcast, and you do several other things. In uh, um, addition to your um, uh, emergency physician practice, so, like, how are you able, able to... To manage this um, different task, I, I wonder, like, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's going personal now.
1: Yeah, I have a I have a lot I have a lot on my plate. Um, I don't sleep very much, um, but I think it's mm. uh, just this passion that drives me. Um, wow! I uh, you know, if I'm interested in something, if I care about something deeply, um, I, yeah. I can make the time for it. Um, and I mean, you know, COVID's been interesting. You know, I can't say I have the best social life in the world, um, you know, as a result of COVID and lockdowns, et cetera. So, you know, there's sacrifices um, and, you know, everyone does things for different motivations and maybe I have strange motivations um, and grandiose motivations. Um, wow. But, you know, I find a way. Um, I, I don't have a, a great sort of uh, uh, prescription or answer there, um, but I guess other other than other than passion. Um and again, uh, living in a high-energy society, um, I have so many benefits, um, which mean that I don't have to consume lots of my time with the basics of survival. Right? When you think about extreme energy poverty, I have a washing machine. Um, I don't have to f- fetch firewood for fuel. Um, <laughs> I, and this isn't i I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to mischaracterize Africa. I know there's um, high levels yeah, of development I, pockets of that. Um, I don't imagine. Africa in that light, but I know in areas of, of deep energy poverty and rural areas that that is something that really limits people. Um, so that's that's why I bring that up um, as a as a little factor there.
0: Okay, sure. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's been quite interesting to hear from you, and um, I would like to call this one the decoupling of the African nuclear la- landscape, if I may say. I don't know if that's really um, falls in place. So. I wonder if you have any last words to yes. like um, tell our audience, people listening to us, the young people, the old, the leaders and the led, I don't know, anything like that.
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, at first off, it's an honor to be on this podcast. Um, I have enormous admiration for the work that you're doing. Um, I have enormous admiration for Africa more broadly and particularly the youth. Um, You're the future of the world. Um, You know, this is an area of uh, underdevelopment that I think is emerging and is going to see very important moments um, in the coming decades. And just as I was saying before, in the West, unfortunately, our youth culture is one of nihilism, is one of hopelessness, is one of dropping out. And from the little I know and have seen uh, in the developing world, um, there are huge struggles. Um, But I think there's an energy amongst the youth to embedder themselves, um, to learn, to study, uh, to gain a profession and ultimately to contribute. And I think uh, there's there's so much potential there. Um, So uh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, It's a real honor to be able to uh, communicate um, and and share some of my thoughts um, with a, a predominantly African audience.
0: Thank you so, so much. And I sincerely appreciate hoping to talk to you some other time in the near future, Dr. Chris.
1: Absolutely.